0: Our teaching text comes from the gospel according to Matthew today, chapter 11, picking up in verse 28. This is what we read. This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, hear Jesus, church, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. So it was a a little over two years ago now uh, that I entered into what out of, uh, at the time, like sheer discomfort, I I would only call a therapeutic relationship. Um, It was like a counselor, but I, I didn't have the courage to call it a counselor, this is a therapeutic relationship. So two years ago, my life and pace and really my emotional well-being were in that kind of mid-COVID fragility. Do do you remember that? you're like, no, Kyle, I'm still living. I'm in the post-COVID fragility. No, So I was in the mid-COVID fragility, and this event took place that kind of shook me up, something fierce. Suffice it to say, um, there was a relationship that I thought was intact and would be moving toward a greater intimacy and friendship, but that relationship was exposed to be something that I would could never imagined a relationship could be. And there was a deep well of hurt in the absence of that. And if you've ever sought guidance from a mental health professional like Brian here, um, you know that those events, th- those are called inciting incidents. Those are the things that can, under the right conditions, compel you to finally cross the threshold of your pain and search for healing. And thus, me seeking out a therapeutic relationship, I had crossed the threshold. But to my surprise, the thing that is the the inciting incident, that was not actually the thing. This is This is what I mean. It's just as a sneeze is to a cold, so too was this incident a mere symptom of a larger constellation of pain just beneath the surface of my life. And progressively, session by session... I discovered that lurking right there beneath my life uh, was this ever-pressing desire for approval as this index of my personal worth. There was a constant buzz of hurry, though I try to give off the air of calm, cool, and collected. No, it was like I was like moving from one thing to the next. There was this rising restlessness that would erupt in these volcanic spats of anger that were generally directed at my then two-year-old son who was taking too long to strap up his vel- velcro shoes in other words my life was speaking to me it was crying out sometimes yelling It, it was and it wasn't until crisis came to bear that I I was able to slow down long enough to listen to like hear the cry of my own life and maybe that sounds really odd and squishy and you're like um Kyle, I'm at church, Like, let's just teach the Bible. Well, because the resurrection was bodily and God has come to redeem the whole of our lives, I think that this part, mind, body, spirit, I think all of this matters because you see right now, you and me, we, all of us, we are becoming a particular type of person. And if you've been around Gateway for any stretch of time, then you've likely heard me talk about this before, that we are, through the, the information we receive and the lives we live, we are indexing our lives toward a certain end. We're becoming a certain type of person. And passively and actively, forces are pushing and pulling on our souls to shape us into consumers or competitors or worshipers or vacations, vacationers or volunteers or parents or friends, colleagues, something. We are being shaped to some end for some goal. And what I found is that I went to therapy to solve a problem on the surface of my life. I really thought like, oh, I will go and I'll attend to this thing because it's kind of spilling over and is awkward and messy, and I'll solve this and then I'll just get on with life. But the thing was not the thing, there was something beneath the surface. And what's so curious is despite my love for the spiritual disciplines, these are, like I have a warm affection for these. I don't know why, but these like ancient desert fathers and mothers, the way they picked up prayer and fasting, Well, I, don't, I suppose nobody really loves fasting because withholding something, like starving your flesh to feed the Spirit, that's not a fun moment. But there's uh, like a deep affection in my heart for those things, for prayer and fasting and scripture reading and worship and the like. Despite my love for those things, my life was itself the perfect kindling for burnout and disillusionment. And I don't know if you yourself have ever felt that. That was me in that, like, right in the throes of COVID. (laughs) This is my point. If a toddler's Velcro strap can threaten to undo you, then perhaps the weight of your life is too much for your soul to bear. And I don't know what your Velcro strap is. If your spouse's or friend's kind of um, sarcastic comment, or even just, like, comment in general undoes your inner woman or inner man, then perhaps the weight of your life is too much for your soul to bear. And whether we like to admit it or not, we are finite. Do you guys remember that, that movie, Limitless? I came, came out a few years ago. There was a handsome fella who plays the main character, Bradley Cooper. I, I, I think he's a handsome fella, nevertheless. Uh, and he discovers this pill and it's, it's like this nootropic. It, uh, it messes with your neurochemistry. It basically unlocks all of the potential of your gray matter. And you become this like superhuman. But it also degenerates your body. I thought that movie was fascinating. It like spent me, I would spend just going, oh my gosh, what would I do if I could do all that stuff? And I think that it captured in some sense, our desire to live without limits, but we are finite. We're limited to one life, one body, one planet, one gender, one family, and yet so much of modern life, it strains against our limitations. And so today, We pick up this ancient conversation, one that embraces and even celebrates our limits and our humanity. We pick up a conversation on Sabbath. Did you know uh, that back in the day, I'm talking about the 1940s and 1950s, back in the day there were these things called blue laws. Uh, Whether you remember these by way of experience or otherwise, these are the laws that if you rolled into a town on a Sunday, you would perhaps, it would be like a ghost town. It's just the picture of a tumbleweed going across. There's no stores that are open, grocery, gas, or otherwise. It's because rest was literally legislated, and it was done so by prohibition. You you could go into that place and it would be essentially, to a town, and it would be shut down. But today in our state, the only blue law that remains on the books is auto sales, because apparently buying a car on a Sunday, that will ruin your soul, but everything else is okay. And this, this is amazing, not, not because religious values were legislated. I think that's a secondary and peripheral matter. This is amazing because it shows at one point in our history, not in our not too distant past, people were viewed as more than products to be consumed. Optimization and efficiency and practicality and pragmatism, those did not rule the day. Uh, every once in a while when I'm in kind of a, a snarky mood, I will say in our home, you know, like, um, Efficiency is not a fruit of the Spirit, um, which is really kind of an excuse for me to be lazy, but nevertheless, that's, a, that's another point for me and Jess to uh, have a chat about. My point is this, modern life strains against our limitations, so what's happened well, borrowing from this framework from the journalist and theologian Andy Crouch, this is this is what in sense has happened. He he describes the current condition that we're in as this sitting atop of a trifold revolution. And so, I just th- this might seem cumbersome, but just stay with me because this is so profound. In the late 14th century, a financial revolution took Europe and then uh, the modern world, really the West, by storm. And and what happened was this thing called banks. Banks took off. This starts with the Medici Bank in 1397. And what happened is it moved the location of wealth from the land and its produce to currency. So all of a sudden you're moving from primarily like lords and serfs. All of a sudden now there's currency. And unlike fruitful land, currency is transferable in a way which requires no personal interaction. It's just a ledger. That's all that accounts for the, like the value of a life is a ledger. And fast forward to today with this in mind, this financial revolution, and you can hold your wrist, if you have an Apple watch or some other smart, you can just hold it to a screen and tap it. And then everybody just agrees that some sort of magic has taken place. And you, and like, uh, like, I guess that's called a transaction. This blows my mind. I will like walk into price chopper where they're chopping prices. And I'll just, I'll be like, oh no, I forgot my wallet. I'm okay because they have Apple pay. Like what, what kind of world, what kind of magic is this? That's the first revolution. In the end, land has been replaced by money, the personal replaced with the impersonal. And then the invention of the steam engine relocated work. It, it made it so that work was radically transformed because previously work had always been done by bodies on land or in homes at the pace of digestion. And here's what I mean. It's either you or your animal. You have to eat. Your body does all this work, converts that food into ATP. You remember that from biology class? And then, or your animal does the same thing. It is like life proceeds at the pace of digestion. But then something happens because engines do not have the same pace. Engines are fact, operating on an entirely different scale. They're 24-7, 365. It changes the dynamics of work. In turn, bodies are replaced by machines and then they're made to relate to the machines like a machine. The personal is replaced with the impersonal. This we call the industrial revolution. The financial revolution energized the industrial revolution and the industrial revolution energized and gave way to the informational revolution. Crouch points out that historically, knowledge was primarily relational. It, it, it took a, a, an entirely different type of interfacing, literally one face to another, because what would happen is you would have the transfer of knowledge through practices done together in our bodies. That would be called wisdom. We, we no longer live in a wisdom world. We live in a world of facts, of information, thus the information revolution, because wisdom requires that you take knowledge and you get it into your body through practice. But information is disembodied. It's just floating out there in the ether, on the podcasts, on wherever, just the social media. Like you all you have to do is press a button, tap a phone, and then you have access. ChatGPT, tell me what this thing is. Boom. And it just populates all this information. Facts can now be acquired without anybody else being involved. Wisdom has been replaced by knowledge, the personal replaced with the impersonal. And each revolution built on and then augmented the former. And to be clear, like genuine good. Just take a moment for a second and look around the room. Like, the air, though cold, is conditioned. (laughs) The walls are presumably insulated I am talking to people through the internet. This is amazing. Do you know the world? Like some of you, you're taking notes. That's what I think you're doing on your phones, by the way. That's what I tell myself to get through these morning is that you're just like, like, oh Lord Jesus, speak to me through your spirit. Yes and amen. That's what you're doing. See, there has been genuine good released through these revolutions. We can't discount that. But despite the abundance and prosperity of modern life, much of which is a sweet gift, I wrote this on a laptop. Amazing. I mean, past generations would marvel. I even did some voice to text in this sermon, which I have to go back and be like, what was I trying to say in that moment? But nevertheless, like, this is amazing. And yet we live, we live in bodies. You can never escape yourself. We live in bodies that are assaulted by information, we are racked by anxiety and plagued by a 24-7 pace. And you can, you can look at the data. You can go and you can peruse the research. And it's kind of alarming. All the social health indices tell us that in fact, we are declining. It's like deaths of despair are increasing. This is an odd paradigm. We have more material provision, more food is thrown away daily and yet more people are suffering like this existential ache, angst than ever. And my guess is that you, if you're not like a data-driven person, just open up your ears at work. Listen to your colleagues, like read through some of the Slack channels. You, you will probably hear this, this phrase, I'm just trying to survive this project or this week or whatever. It's something i hear this is a co-working space people use this language i'm not making this up i'm just trying to survive how is it that probably the the people who are eating well are very well paid and seemingly fit are trying are talking as though there's scarcity all around them just trying to survive See, whether we look to the data or we try and listen to our colleagues or even ourselves, we, we can hear that there is an ache for rest. And I, I think that I hear this, teach, this tension most in the phrase, I can't even. Do any of you use that phrase? It's, it, that's the whole phrase, I can't even. It just is like, you can't do what? It's like, no, 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 I can't even. I guess it's a phrase that's meant to like encapsulate our frustration with a moment or a person or traffic or a child or your friend or a ta- whatever. It's like, I can't even. Uh, and Anne Helen Peterson, she's the author of this book, Can't Even, subtitle, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. That's my generation. Apparently, burnout is a rite of passage now. And this is how she talks about us. She says, we're trying to build a solid foundation on quicksand. Rather than freedom, the revolutions financial, industrial, informational they have left us with like our lives just sinking beneath us. External plenty and internal fragility. In this interview, that, by the way, I've not read the book. I read an interview uh, and was compelled by some of her points and so thus you get this quote from an interview that I did read um, but she says this these are the chief complaints from millennials about the pace of modern life expectations and stuff like that this is what she says a lot of sadness and regret how are we doing does that feel like it maps Yeah. Many people I heard from believed they had made the choices they were supposed to make, and it led them to a deeply unsatisfying place. They had confidence in the path. Society assured them it was the right path, and so they went to college, they took out debt, expected things to work out, or they pursued a certain career and found themselves continually exploited and continually behind. And then listen to this line. It's rather haunting. The end result of that is a kind of despair and anger. And if you chuckled a little, that might have been a laugh that came from a place of like, I don't know, you're reading my story, this is uncomfortable. Have you felt this? Like, have you felt that pace, the, like that unsatisfying place that you're going, but apparently you've already taken out the loans, so you might as well finish it? Like, have you felt at times that life is fundamentally unstable and you're simply caught between the teeter and totter of a global crisis over here, a relational breakdown over there, and then just one more mass shooting away from existential crisis? Like, what is this thing that we're living called life? See, my guess is is that many of us feel like the weight of our life is too heavy for our souls to carry. What do we do with our burden when the burden persists? It's interesting. One of the books that's recommended on your, uh, on your little card there, your bookmark, is A.J. Swoboda's Subversive Sabbath. And he has this theory that we actually want crisis. We, we want crisis because it is the only place culturally that we are given permission to breathe. And so we secretly crave these moments of tragedy because we can finally exhale. See, what if there was always before us, week after week, a space to cast aside the dispersions of our scattered minds and actually exhale, no crisis needed. And I'm not talking about therapy. See, as much as therapy has been a gift and a guide, and I think it very well could be for many folks, therapy cannot unburden our souls. Therapy cannot rest your inner woman or my inner man. Like therapy, in any discipline or spiritual practice for that matter, it cannot It cannot bring us to the one who can give us rest. What it can do is hold space, but Sabbath and any other discipline is only meant to point us to the one who can rest our souls. And so today we start this conversation about Sabbath, which is really just a conversation about coming to Jesus afresh. You know, we have this phrase, it's not just used in the church, it's a, a come to Jesus conversation. Consider this series a come to Jesus series. Think about Jesus' words in our teaching text. This is verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary or burdened, and I will give you rest. Are there any of you who are just like tired? I don't know. Maybe if it, it's okay, like I'm fit, like you did not sleep well last night, you're like yes, I am that tired. Yeah, that that qualifies. Come to me says Jesus. See, the invitation on offer from Jesus is not to go to therapy or to go to meditation or to go to yoga, all of which I think are beautiful things that you can take up as a practice to integrate your life into Jesus's life, but they are simply tools given along the way to help lead you to Jesus. They are not the one to whom Jesus invites you to go. Instead, Jesus says, come to me, because Jesus is the space where we can bring our burdens and then route our desires. I don't, Jesus doesn't even say go to church. He says come to me. Now, don't get me wrong, I want you to come to church. And not because at some level there is like this, I don't know, evangelical industrial complex where we've set up an arrangement where you come here, you tithe, I get paid. Not that. I want you to come so that you might be enriched by people around you who share part of your story. People who are saying, you ever had a moment with a friend where you're like, or a person before they become a friend, you go, oh, you too? That's a part of your story. Do you know that following Jesus is a bit odd? This past Sunday, We exalted the name of Jesus because he died, was buried in a tomb, and then the power of God raised him bodily to never die again. Am I the only one in the room right now that just is like, oh my gosh. And then he, Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, want to take up residence in me. This is a little odd. We come together in the name of Jesus to actually like look around and go, you, you too? Like he's captivated your heart and your imagination. He's invited you to like enter into, okay. We're different, but I think we're the same, you and me. See, this is where Jesus, he's not saying come to church. He's saying, come to me. I want to be the space where you can unfurl your burdens. And this is beautiful. I love how Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, I love how he draws this together. He says, according to some, the word Sabbath is the name of the Holy One. And listen to this, this is a little technical, a little wordy, but it's, this is beautiful. The primary awareness of Sabbath is one of our being within the Sabbath rather than of the Sabbath being within us. Just pause right there. This thought just came to mind. this isn't in my notes. Um, but this morning, I woke up, and my body was kind of tight, so I I don't know did some stretching, and I'm following along with this guy. And he was saying, "Come to yourself." He' was saying, L- "Love yourself." because it's from that place then that you can love others. And I was I, I was caught off guard because at first, I that like didn't even register, you know, it's like, I don't know, 5.45 in the morning, I'm feeling tight, I'm gonna do some stretching, I need some help to do that. So there I was in that moment, but the invitation of Jesus elsewhere in the scriptures is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because it's from there, the orientation toward God, that then I can love my neighbor as myself. See, this notion that I can kind of come to quiet in myself and there in my depths, I will find the energizing reality to move me in the world and love, that is a lie. The reality, however, is that God is so patient that he will meet you there even when you're at the end of yourself. This is what Brueggemann is after. The primary awareness then is one of our being within the Sabbath rather than the Sabbath being within us. It's not like we come to quiet and we come in there at the internal place, our deepest part, we find the Sabbath. No, he says it this way. The air of the Sabbath surrounds us like spring, which spreads over the land without our aid or notice. The Sabbath is just happening. Brueggemann elsewhere will talk about the, the, the Sabbath as a cathedral in time. Now, I've not been in a cathedral, but I have been in cathedral-like churches. And you know how you go through the doorways and they're rather small? And then what you open up to is this beautiful expanse, the pillars and the lights, the stained glass. That is the Sabbath, a cathedral in time. The rest that we desire, it sits ever present, ever eager to receive us. You don't have to drum up the rest you want. And while crisis can compel us to like rearrange our lives, to pursue healing, only Jesus can attend to our souls. Jesus will say, I, I want to rest your your souls. This one reminds you... He, you do not simply like possess a soul, some disembodied thing that when your life gives way and I don't know, you stop producing ATP, you have no more life and vitality that then your soul like floats up to be with God and the heavens know. In the biblical imaginations, you are a soul, mind, body, spirit. And therefore Jesus wants to redeem all of you just as he wants his waters, to, like his spirit to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. He wants all of you, all of creation to enter into true. Rest, your soul is what Jesus is interested in bringing rest to the whole of your person. And I could be wrong about this. I don't think that I am, but I could be. Uh, if we fail to see that Jesus has invited us to come and to unfurl the weight of our lives so that we might receive, so that we might receive a new way of living, we will inevitably treat Jesus in the Sabbath just like we treat therapy or any practice as a tool or technique for self-optimization. Let me say that a little slower. If we fail to see that Jesus has come to him so that we might receive a new way of life, we will likely treat Jesus and therefore the Sabbath as a technique to improve our lives. The Sabbath is about entering into Jesus, to come to him, to the one who can rest our souls. It could be said, and I suppose I'm actually saying this, is that there is no rest apart from Jesus. Think about our vacations. Even our vacations are restless. Like every sunset, every show, every restaurant, every cafe, they call out, they like call to us. They tell us a story of the good life, but our pace, it's so fast, its demands are too heavy that we're like, okay, I'll just like take a picture and I'll post it and then I'll try and remember it there. But no, think about the word vacation. It is to vacate, to get out of, Jesus is not interested in you getting out of your life. He is interested of you getting fully into your life. Um, But you can't do that 24-7, 365. The Jewish people are um, rather interesting to me, at least, because Jesus himself was Jewish. Our heritage is rooted in the Hebrew Bible. Um, Do you know that when the Jewish folks went to war, they're in this, this place uh, that is right between Egypt and Lebanon on the Mediterranean Sea. They're in this passage that is still contested geography to this day. It was often a path for trade. It was like ideal territory, but conflicted territory. Um, when they went to war, and it feels like they were often at war, if not always, <laughs> they would not fight on the Sabbath because even your enemy needs a break. Isn't that something? They would actually say that there is a place. There is a place, a a specific time where we can put down our labor. We can put down even our fighting. They would not do any offensive fighting. They would only do defensive fighting on the Sabbath. As we turn to close, hear Jesus' words again. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, please do not miss this. To those of us who are burdened, and I'm guessing all of us are in individual ways, Jesus offers a yoke. Have you thought about a yoke recently? I'm not, uh, perhaps the last time you heard somebody say yoke, they were talking about how like buff they are. They're saying, oh, I'm yoked. Um, That's not what Jesus is talking about. A yoke is an agrarian work instrument. It's something that an ox would have over uh, their shoulders, their haunches. That is the yoke. And so Jesus is saying, come to me if you're burdened and I will give you a work instrument to attend to your rest. You would think that Jesus would say, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and take refuge in me, that he would pick up the language of the psalmist and say, come to me because I am like the cleft you've longed for, but he doesn't. He says, come to me if you're burdened, and I will give you an instrument to work with. He says, when we settle our lives into Jesus' life, we find that he is constantly retreating into the Father's care because he says, come to me and learn. Take my yoke and learn from me. Well, what is it that Jesus does? He's constantly retreating. We see him on the Sabbath, we see him delighting, we see him feasting, we see him ceasing, we see him resting, and we also see that the way he observed the Sabbath frustrates the religious. So this is not an invitation over the next six weeks to some religious practice. You already have enough you're doing. This invitation is to stop doing so much. But what that will also mean is that there are some things that need to go to the altar there will be some things in our lives that have to die in order for us to receive the rest we long for i can't do that for you in fact i have no interest in doing that however what i do have an interest in is taking up jesus's invitation and i want to do that with you not because it's like hey look at this no it's because i like desperately want the rest that Jesus offers. And let me just say, um, there are these things called Sabbath withdrawals. It's where all of a sudden your life has been so busy that when you make space for like rest to come, the noise of your life shoots to the surface and you feel restless and uncomfortable, that's okay. So here is what the, this is the invitation. This is the place to where we're headed. The Sabbath is a literal 24-hour period without anxiety. This is where you all say amen. Without have-tos or shoulds, which over time is to result in deep rest and renewal. The goal of the Sabbath is not to gain. That is, the Sabbath is not about ceasing for efficiency's sake. This is not to make you a better person collaborator, a better employee. And when I first heard about rest like this, I I heard rest was like, oh, I need to take a rest from my work. Then that evolved, and I think it was a gift, but it evolved to I need to um, work from my rest. That is, my rest exists, and then I'm working from that place. This is neither of those. The goal of Sabbath is not to rest so that I can work more effectively or to achieve more efficiency. The goal of Sabbath is to rest so that I might resist the idol of efficiency. So to be clear, this is an invitation to be a contrasting anti-culture. What do I mean by that? I mean this is an invitation to pick up the way of Jesus. You might even say this, to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of the city. You might say, oh, that sounds familiar. It's because that's kind of the ambition of this community, to pick up, to practice the way of Jesus for renewal's sake. See, what's beautiful about this is it is a type of revolution, but it's a Jesus revolution. And not the Jesus revolution that started in the 60s, but the Jesus revolution that started way back when when history literally turned on its hinge and the tomb was emptied, it's that revolution. And it is the type of revolution that both gives us a place to unfurl our burdens and to receive rest. This rest is true revolution. Do you know that the most like, subversive thing you might do today is to observe the Sabbath? I was talking to Matt about this the other day. I think perhaps the most punk rock thing you can do is be a follower of Jesus to take on the life of Jesus, to pursue a life of being a non-anxious presence by grounding yourself in him. Do you notice Jesus is like never running around? He's constantly being interrupted. Jesus has a different pace. The Sabbath is an invitation to take that pace up, a joy-filled revolution. This is a humanizing reality that we get to enter into. It's one that pushes back and resists any notion that you or your neighbor or your enemy or the earth itself is an object to be consumed. But that all of creation is a gift to be celebrated. And so my hope is, is that over the coming weeks, this next week as we take up like a picture of the biblical theology of Sabbath and as we build out a practice is that we, we would see that this is about celebration, this is about delighting and ceasing and feasting and resting, that this is about delight. You'll actually have a practice where I'm going to ask you with pen and paper to list out a full day, a 24-hour period of the most delightful things you can do. And my guess is that you'll go, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. 24, doing everything I really enjoy? Are you sure that's okay? Yes, this is a principle called pleasure stacking where you literally withhold through the week and then you like let pleasure have its full in your life because that's what it's like to be in God's presence. It's the opposite of the religious impulse of do not do, it's actually receive fully. And I don't share this from a place of I have this down for like, I don't know, five-ish years, we've been flirting with the Sabbath and fits and starts and some seasons are a little bit more regular and most of the time it's awkward and we don't really want it but, Here we stand to receive what Jesus is calling us to, to come to him, to receive his rest.